Low by Charles Fort. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Part 1. Chapter 1. A naked man in a city street. The track of a horse in volcanic mud. The mystery of reindeer's ears. A huge black form like a whale in the sky, and it drips red drops as if attacked by celestial swordfishes. An appalling cherub appears in the sea. Confusions. Showers of frogs and blizzards of snails. Gushes of periwinkles down from the sky. The preposterous, the grotesque, the incredible. And why, if I am going to tell of hundreds of these, is the quite ordinary so regarded? An unclothed man shocks a crowd. A moment later, if nobody is generous with an overcoat, somebody is collecting handkerchiefs to knot around him. A naked fact startles a meeting of a scientific society, and whatever it has for loins is soon diapered with conventional explanations. Chaos and muck and filth, the indeterminable and the unrecordable and the unknowable, and all men are liars, and yet, wigwams on an island, sparks in their columns of smoke. Centuries later, the uncertain columns are towers. What once were fluttering sparks are the motionless lights of windows. According to critics of Tammany Hall, there has been monstrous corruption upon this island. Nevertheless, in the midst of it, the regularization has occurred. A woodland sprawl has sprung to stony attention. The princess Caribou tells of herself a story in an unknown language, and persons who were themselves liars have said that she lied, though nobody has ever known what she told. The story of Dorothy Arnold has been told thousands of times, but the story of Dorothy Arnold and the swan has not been told before. A city turns to a crater and casts out eruptions, as lurid as fire, of living things. And where Cagliostro came from and where he went are so mysterious that only historians say they know. Venomous snakes crawl on the sidewalks of London, and a star twinkles. But the underlying oneness in all confusions. An onion and a lump of ice. And what have they in common? Traceries of ice millions of years ago, forming on the surface of a pond. Later, with different materials, these same forms will express botanically. If something had examined primordial frost, it could have predicted jungles. Times when there was not a living thing on the face of this earth. And upon pyrolocyte, there were etchings of forms that, after the appearance of cellulose, would be trees. Dendritic sketches, and silver and copper, prefigured ferns and vines. Mineral specimens now in museums. Calcites that are piles of petals. Or long ago were the rough notes of a rose. Scales, horns, quills, thorns, teeth, arrows, spears, bayonets. Long before they were the implements and weapons of living things, they were the mineral forms. I know of an ancient sketch that is today a specimen in a museum, a colorful little massacre that was composed of calcites ages before religion was dramatized. Pink forms impaled upon mauve spears, sprinkled with drops of magenta. I know of a composition of barites that appeared ages before the Israelites made what is said to be history. 
Blue waves heaped high on each side of a drab streak of forms like the horns of cattle. Heads of asses, humps of camels, turbans and upheld hands. Underlying oneness. A new star appears. And just how remote is it from drops of water? Of unknown origin, falling on a cottonwood tree in Oklahoma. Just what have the tree and the star to do with the girl of Swanton Novers? upon whom gushed streams of oils. And why was a clergyman equally greased? Earthquakes and droughts, and the sky turns black with spiders, and near Trenton, New Jersey, something pegged stones at farmers. If lights that have been seen in the sky were upon the vessels of explorers from other worlds, then living in New York City, perhaps, or in Washington, D.C., perhaps, there are inhabitants of Mars who are secretly sending reports upon the ways of this world to their governments. A theory feels its way through surrounding ignorance. The tendrils of a vine feel their way along a trellis. A wagon train feels its way across a prairie. Underlying Oneness Projections of limonite and a suffusion of smoky quartz. It will be ages before this little mineral sketch can develop into the chimneys and the smoke of Pittsburgh but it reproduces when a volcano blasts the vegetation on a mountain and smoke forms hang around the stumps of trees, broken shafts of an ancient city in a desert. There are projections in the tattered gusts of a sandstorm. If Napoleon Bonaparte's retreat from Moscow, ragged bands in the grimy snow stumbling amidst abandoned cannon. Maybe it was only coincidence. Or what may there be to Napoleon's own belief that something was supervising him? Suppose it is that, in November 1812, Napoleon's work as a factor in European readjustments was done. There was no military power upon this earth that could remove this one, whose work was done. There came coldness so intense that it destroyed the Grand Army. Human knowledge, and its fakes and freaks, an astronomer insulated by his vanity, seemingly remote from the tops and frailties of everybody else may not be so far away as he thinks he is. He calculates where an undiscovered planet will be seen. Lo, as the astronomers like to say, it is seen. But for some very distressing, if not delightful particulars, see later an account on Lowell's planet. Stars are said to be trillions of miles away, but there are many alleged remotenesses that are not so far away as they are said to be. The Johnstown Flood and the Smash of Peru and the little nigger that was dragged to a police station. Terrified horses, up on their hind legs, hoofing a storm of frogs. Frenzied springboks, capering their exasperations against frogs that were tickling them. Storekeepers in London, gaping at frogs that were tapping on their window panes. We shall pick up an existence by its frogs. Wise men have tried other ways. They have tried to understand our state of being by grasping at its stars, or its arts, or its economics. But if there is an underlying oneness of all things, it does not matter where we begin, whether with stars, or laws of supply and demand, or frogs, or Napoleon Bonaparte. One measures a circle, beginning anywhere. I have collected 294 records of showers of living things. Have I? Well, there's no accounting for the freaks of industry. 
It is the profound conviction of most of us that there never has been a shower of living things. But some of us, at least in an elementary way, been educated by surprises out of much that we were absolutely sure of, and are suspicious of a thought simply because it is a profound conviction. I got the story of the terrified horses and the storm of frogs from Mr. George C. Stoker of Lovelock. Mr. John Reed of Lovelock, who is known to me as a writer upon geological subjects, vouches for Mr. Stoker, and I vouch for Mr. Reed. Mr. Stoker vouches for me. I've never heard of anything, any pronouncement, dogma, enunciation, or pontification that was better substantiated. What is a straight line? A straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Well then, what is the shortest distance between two points? That is a straight line. According to the test of ages, the definition that a straight line is a straight line cannot be improved upon. I start with a logic as exacting as Euclid's. Mr. Stoker was driving along the Newark Valley, one of the most extensive of the desert regions of Nevada. Thunderstorm. Down came frogs. Up on their hind legs went the horses. The exasperated springboks, they were told of in the Northern News, Vryberg, Transvaal, March 21, 1925, by Mr. C.J. Gruer of Utenage. Also, I have a letter from Mr. Gruer. The flats, about 50 miles from Utenage. Springboks leaping and shaking themselves unaccountably. At a distance, Mr. Gruer could conceive of no explanation of such eccentricities. He investigated and saw that a rain of little frogs and fishes had pelted the springboks. Mr. Gruer heard that sometime before at the same place there had been a similar shower. Coffins had come down from the sky. Also, as everybody knows, silk, hats, and horse collars, and pajamas. But these things have come down at the time of a whirlwind. The two statements that I start with are that no shower exclusively of coffins, nor of marriage certificates, nor of alarm clocks has been recorded. But that showers exclusively of living things are common. And yet the explanation by Orthodox scientists who accept that showers of living things have occurred is that the creatures were the products of whirlwinds. The explanation is that little frogs, for instance, fall from the sky, unmixed with anything else, because in a whirlwind the creatures were segregated by differences in specific gravity. But when a whirlwind strikes a town, away go detachables in a monstrous mixture and there's no findable record of wash tubs coming down in one place. All the town's cats in one falling battle that lumps its infelicities in one place, and all the kittens coming down together somewhere else, in a distant bunch that meows for its lump of mothers. See London newspapers, August 18th and 19th, 1921. Innumerable little frogs that appeared during a thunderstorm upon the 17th in streets of the northern part of London. I have searched in almost all the London newspapers, and in many provincial newspapers, and in scientific publications. There is, findable by me, no mention of a whirlwind upon the 17th of August, and no mention of a fall from the sky of anything else that might be considered another segregated discharge from a whirlwind, if there had been a whirlwind. A whirlwind runs amok, and is filled with confusions, and yet to the incoherences of such a thing, have been attributed the neatest of classifications. 
I do not say that no wind ever scientifically classifies objects. I have seen orderly or logical segregations by wind action. I ask for records of whirlwinds that do this. There is no perceptible science by a whirlwind in the delivery of its images. It rants trees, doors, frogs, and parts of cows. But living things have fallen from the sky, or in some unknown way have appeared and have arrived homogeneously. If they have not been segregated by winds, something has selected them. There have been repetitions of these arrivals. The phenomena of repetition, too, is irreconcilable with the known ways of whirlwinds. There is an account in the London Daily News, September 5, 1922, of little toads, which for two days had been dropping from the sky at Chalonsur, Saône, France. Lies, yarns, hoaxes, mistakes. What's the specific gravity of a lie? How am I to segregate? That could be done only relatively to a standard, and I've never heard of any standard in any religion, philosophy, science, or complication of household affairs that could not be made to fit any requirement. We fit standards to judgments, or break any law that it pleases us to break, and fit to the fracture, some other alleged law that we say is higher and nobler. We have conclusions, which are the products of senility, or incompetence, or credulity, and then argue from them to premises. We forget this process, and then argue from the premises, thinking we began there. There are accounts of showering things that came from so far away they were unknown in places where they arrived. If only horses and springboks express emotions in these matters, we'll be calm thinking that even living things may have been transported to this earth from other worlds. Philadelphia Public Ledger, August 8, 1891 a great shower of fishes at Seymour. There were unknown fishes. Public Ledger, February 6, 1890, a shower of fishes in Montgomery County, California. The fishes belong to a species altogether unknown here. New York Sun, May 29, 1892, a shower at Colburg, Alabama, of an enormous number of eels that were unknown in Alabama. Somebody said that they knew of such eels in the Pacific Ocean. Piles of them in the streets, people alarmed, farmers coming with carts and taking them away for fertilizing material. Our subject has been treated scientifically, or too scientifically. There have been experiments. I have no more of an ill opinion of experimental science than I have of everything else. But I have been an experimenter myself and have impressions of the servile politeness of experiments. They have such an obliging or ingratiating way that there's no trusting the flatterers. And the Red Roof, Cornwall, England, Independent, August 13th, and following issues, 1886, correspondents tell of a shower of snails near Red Roof. There were experiments. One correspondent, who believed that the creatures were sea snails, put some in salt water. They lived. Another correspondent, who believed that they were not sea snails, put some in salt water. They died. I do not know how to find out anything new without being offensive. To the ignorant, all things are pure. All knowledge is or implies the degradation of something. One who learns of metabolism looks at Venus and realizes she's partly rotten. However, she smiles at him, and he renews his ignorance. All things in the sky are pure to those who have no telescopes. But spots on the sun and lumps on the planets... 
and being a person of learning, or rather erudition myself, I've got to besmirch something, or nobody will believe I am, and I replace the pure blue sky with the wormy heavens. London Evening Standard, January 3rd, 1924. Red objects falling with snow at Halmstead, Sweden. There were red worms from one to four inches in length, thousands of them streaking down with the snowflakes, red ribbons in a shower of confetti, a carnival scene that boosts my discovery that meteorology is a more picturesque science than most persons, including meteorologists, have suspected. And I fear me that my attempt to besmirch has not been successful, because the worms of heaven seem to be a jolly lot. However, I cheer up at thought of chances to come, because largely I shall treat of human nature. But how am I to know whether these things fell from the sky in Sweden, or were imagined in Sweden? I shall be scientific about it. Said Sir Isaac Newton, or virtually said he, If there is no change in the direction of a moving body, the direction of a moving body is not changed. But, continued he, if something be changed, it is changed as much as it is changed. So red worms fell from the sky in Sweden, because from the sky in Sweden red worms fell. How do geologists determine the age of rocks? By the fossils in them. And how do they determine the age of the fossils? By the rocks they're in. Having started with the logic of Euclid, I could go on with the wisdom of a Newton. New Orleans, Daily Picayune, February 4th, 1892. Enormous numbers of unknown brown worms that had fallen from the sky near Clifton, Indiana. San Francisco Chronicle, February 14th, 1892. Myriads of unknown scarlet worms somewhere in Massachusetts. Not seen to fall from the sky, but found covering several acres after a snowstorm. It's as if with intelligence or with the equivalence of intelligence. Something has specialized upon transporting or distributing immature and larval forms of life. If the gods send worms, that would be kind if we were robins. In Insect Life, 1892, page 335, the editor, Professor C.V. Riley, tells of four other mysterious appearances of worms early in the year 1892. Some of the specimens he could not definitely identify. It is said that at Lancaster, PA, people in a snowstorm caught falling worms on their umbrellas. The wise men of our tribes have tried to find God in a poem, or in whatever they think they mean by a moral sense in people, or in inscriptions in a book of stone, which by one of the strangest freaks of omission is not now upon exhibition in from 15 to 20 synagogues in Asia Minor and all up and down Italy. Crabs and periwinkles. Ordinary theologians have overlooked crabs and periwinkles, or mystery versus the fishmonger. Upon May 28, 1881, near the city of Worcester, England, a fishmonger, with a procession of carts, loaded with several kinds of crabs and periwinkles, and with a dozen energetic assistants, appeared at a time when nobody on our busy road was looking. The fishmonger and his assistants grabbed snacks of periwinkles and ran in a frenzy, slinging the things into fields on both sides of the road. They raced to gardens, and some assistants, standing on the shoulders of other assistants, had sacks lifted to them and dumped sacks over the high walls. Meanwhile, other assistants in a dozen carts were furiously shoveling out periwinkles about a mile along the road. 
Also, meanwhile, several boys were busily mixing in crabs. They were not advertising anything. Above all, there was secrecy. The cost must have been hundreds of dollars. They appeared without having been seen on the way, and they melted away equally mysteriously. There were houses all around, but nobody saw them. Would I be so kind as to tell what, in the name of some slight approximation to sanity, I mean by telling such a story? But it is not my story. The details are mine, but I have put them in, strictly in accordance with the circumstances. There was, upon May 28, 1881, an occurrence near Worcester, and the conventional explanation was that a fishmonger did it. Inasmuch as he did it unobserved, if he did it, and inasmuch as he did it with tons upon acres, if he did it, he did it as I have described, if he did it. In Land and Water, June 4, 1881, a correspondent writes that, in a violent thunderstorm near Worcester, tons of periwinkles had come down from the sky, covering fields and a road for about a mile. In the issue of June 11th, the editor of Land and Water writes that specimens had been sent to him. He notes the mysterious circumstance or the indication of a selection of living things. It appears in virtually all the accounts. He comments upon an enormous fall of sea creatures, unaccompanied by sand, pebbles, outer shells, and seaweed. In the Worcester Daily Times, May 30th, it is said that, upon the 28th, news had reached Worcester of a wonderful fall from the sky of periwinkles on Gromer Gardens Road and spread far around in fields and gardens. Mostly, people of Worcester were incredulous, but some had gone to the place. Those who had faith returned with periwinkles. Two correspondents then wrote that they had seen the periwinkles upon the road before the storm where probably a fishmonger had got rid of them. So the occurrence conventionalized, and out of these surmises arose the story of the fishmonger, though it has never been told before, as I have told it. Mr. J. Lloyd Bosworth, a writer whose notes on meteorological subjects are familiar to readers of scientific periodicals of this time, was investigating, and his findings were published in the Worcester Evening Post, June 9th. As to the story of the fishmonger, note his statement that the value of periwinkles was 16 shillings a bushel. He says that a wide area on both sides of the road was strewn with periwinkles, hermit crabs, and small crabs of an unascertained species. Worcester is about 30 miles from the mouth of the River Severn, or, say, about 50 miles from the sea. Probably no fishmonger in the world ever had at one time so many periwinkles but as to anybody having got rid of a stock because of a glutted market, for instance. Mr. Bosworth says, Neither upon Saturday the 28th nor Friday the 27th was there such a thing procurable in Worcester as a living periwinkle. Gardens as well as fields were strewn. There were high walls around these gardens. Mr. Bosworth tells of ten sacks of periwinkles, of a value of about twenty pounds in the markets of Worcester, that to his knowledge had been picked up. Crowds had filled pots and pans and bags and trunks before he got to the place. In Mr. Mon's garden, two sacks were filled with them. It is his conclusion that the things fell from the sky during the thunderstorm. So his is the whirlwind explanation. There are extraordinary occurrences and conventionalization cloaks them. And the more commonplace the cloakery, the more satisfactory. Periwinkles appear on a tract of land, through which there is a road. A fishmonger did it. But the crabs and the fishmonger, 
And if the fishmonger did the periwinkles, did he do the crabs if he did it? Or the crabs in the whirlwind? And if the periwinkles were segregated from pebbles and seaweed, why not from the crabs if segregation did it? The strongest point for the segregationists is in their own mental processes, which illustrate that segregations, whether by wind action or not, do occur. If they have periwinkles and crabs to explain, and say, that with the story of a fishmonger or of a whirlwind, they can explain the periwinkles, though so they cannot explain the crabs. A separation of data occurs in their mentalities. They forget the crabs and tell of the periwinkles. Chapter 2 Frogs and fishes and worms. And these are the materials of our expression upon all things. Hops and flops and squirms. And these are the motions. But we have been considering more than matter and motion to start with. We have been considering attempts by scientists to explain them. By explanation, I mean organization. There is more than matter and motion in our existence. There is organization of matter and motion. Nobody takes a little clot that is central in a disease germ as absolute truth. And the latest scientific discovery is only something for ideas to systematize around. But there is this systematization or organization, and we shall have to consider it. There is no more meaning, though that may be utmost meaning, to arrangements of observations than there is to arrangements of protoplasm in a microbe. But it must be noted that scientific explanations do often work out rather well. But say in medical treatments, if ailments are mostly fancied, or in stock market transactions, except in a crisis, or in expert testimony in the courts, except when set aside by other expert testimony. But they are based upon definitions. And in phenomenal existence, there is nothing that is independent of everything else, given that there is continuity. Everything is a degree or aspect of whatever everything else is. Consequently, there is no way of defining anything, except in terms of itself. Try any alleged definition. What is an island? An island is a body of land completely surrounded by water. And what is a body of land that is completely surrounded by water? Among savage tribesmen, there is a special care for, or even respectfulness for, the mentally afflicted. They are regarded as in some obscure way representing God's chosen. We recognize the defining of a thing in terms of itself, as a sign of feeble-mindedness. All scientists begin their works with just such definitions, implied if not stated. And among our tribes, there is a special care for, or even respectfulness for, scientists. It will be an expression of mine that there is a godness in this idiocy. But no matter what sometimes my opinion may be, I am not now writing that God is an idiot. Maybe he or it drools comets and gibbers earthquakes. But the scale would have to be considered at least super idiocy. I conceive, or tell myself that I conceive, that if we could have a concept of our existence as a whole, we could have a kind of understanding of it, rather akin to what say, cells in an animal organism could have of what is a whole to them, if they should not be mere scientists trying to find out what a bone is or the flow of blood in a vein is in itself. But if they could comprehend what the structures and functions of the organism are in terms of itself, 
The attempted idea of existence as organism is one of the oldest of the pseudo-thoughts of philosophy. But the idea in this book is not metaphysical. Metaphysical speculations are attempts to think unthinkably, and it is quite hard enough to think thinkably. There can be nothing but bafflement for anybody who tries to think of existence as organism. Our attempt will be to think of an existence as an organism. Having a childish liking for a little rhetoric now and then, I shall call it God. Our expressions are in terms of continuity. If all things merge away into one another, or transmute into one another, so that nothing can be defined, they are of a oneness, which may be the oneness of one existence. I state that though I accept that there is continuity, I accept that also there is discontinuity, but there is no need in this book to go into the subject of continuity-discontinuity, because no statement that I shall make, as a monist, will be set aside by my pluralism. There is a oneness that both submerges and individualizes. By the continuity of all things we have, with a flop and a hop and a squirm, jumps from frogs toward finality. We have rejected whirlwinds and the fishmonger, and of incipient notions upon a selectiveness and an intelligent or purposeful distribution of living things. What is selecting and what is distributing? The old-fashioned theologian thinks of a being with the looks of himself standing aside somewhere and directing operations. What in any organism is selecting and distributing, say, oxygen in lungs and materials in stomachs? The organism itself. If we can think of our existence as a conceivable-sized formation, perhaps one of countless things, beings or formations in the cosmos, we have graspableness, or we have the outlines and the limits within which to think. We look up at the stars. The look is of a revolving shell that is not far away. And against such a view, there is no opposition except by an authoritative feeble-mindedness, which most of us treat respectfully, because such is the custom in all more or less savage tribes. Mostly in this book, I shall specialize upon indications that there exists a transitory force that I shall call teleportation. I shall be accused of having assembled lies, yarns, hoaxes, and superstitions. To some degree, I think so myself. To some degree, I do not. I offer the data. Chapter 3 The subject of reported falls from the sky, of an edible substance, in Asia Minor, is confused, because reports have been upon two kinds of substances. It seems that the sugar-like kind cannot be accepted. In July 1927, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem sent an expedition to the Sinai Peninsula to investigate reported showers of manna. See the New York Times, December 4, 1927. Members of the expedition found what they called manna upon leaves of tamarisk trees and on the ground underneath, and explained that it was secreted by insects. But the observations of this expedition have nothing to do with data or stories of falls from the sky, of fibrous, convoluted lumps of a substance that can be ground into an edible flower. A dozen times since early in the 19th century, and I have no definitely dated data upon still earlier occurrences, have been reported showers of manna in Asia Minor. An early stage within the shell of an egg, and a protoplasmic line of growth feels out through surrounding substance. 
And of itself, it has no means of subsistence, or of itself, it is lost. Nourishment and protection and guidance come to it from the whole, or in wider existence, several thousand years ago, a line of fugitives feels out in a desert. It will be of use to coming social organizations. But in the desert, it is unprovided for and is withering. Food falls from the sky. It is one of the most common places of miracles. Within any womb, an embryonic thing is unable to provide for itself, but mana is sent to it. Given an organic view of an existence, we think of this supervision of a whole upon its parts. Or that once upon a time, a whole responded to the need of a part, and then kept on occasionally showering mana thousands of years after a special need for it had ceased. This looks like stupidity. It is in one of my moments of piety that I say this, because though in our neo-theology there is no worship, I note that in this conception of what we may call godness, I supply grounds for devotions. Let a god change anything, and there will be reactions of evil as much as of good. Only stupidity can be divine. Or occasional falls of mana, to this day, in Asia Minor, may be only one factor in a wider continuance. It may be that an organism, having once showered a merely edible substance upon its chosen phenomena, has been keeping this up as a symbol of favoritism, by which said chosen phenomena have been receiving abundances of mana in many forms ever since. The substance that occasionally falls from the sky, in Asia Minor, comes from far away. The occurrences are far apart in time, and always the substance is unknown where it falls, and its edibleness is sometimes found out by the sight of sheep eating it. Then it is gathered and sold in the markets. We are told that it has been identified as a terrestrial product. We are told that these showers are aggregations of Lecanora esculenta, a lichen that grows plentifully in Algeria. We are told that whirlwinds catch up these lichens, lying loose or easily detachable on the ground. But note this. There have been no such reported showers in Algeria. There have been no such reported showers in places between Algeria and Asia Minor. The nearest similarity that I can think of is of tumbleweeds in the western states, though tumbleweeds are much larger, while then new growths of them, when they're not much larger. But I've never heard of a shower of tumbleweeds. Probably the things are often carried far by whirlwinds, but only scoot along the ground. A story that would be similar to the story of lichens from Algeria falling in Asia Minor would be of tumbleweeds never falling in showers in western states but repeatedly showering in Ontario, Canada, having been carried there by whirlwinds. Out of a dozen records I mentioned that in Nature, 43-255, and in La Nature, 36-82, are accounts of one of the showers in Asia Minor. The director of the Central Dispensary of Baghdad has sent to France specimens of an edible substance that had fallen from the sky. At Meriden and Diyarbikis, Turkey, in Asia, in a heavy rain, the last of May, 1890. They were convoluted lumps, yellow outside and white inside. They were ground into flour, from which excellent bread was made. According to the ready-made convention, botanists said that the objects were specimens of Lecanora esculenta, lichens, 
that had been carried in a whirlwind. London Daily Mail, August 13, 1913, that streets in the town of Kukmanshas, Persia, had been covered with seeds, which the people thought were the mana of biblical times. The Royal Botanical Society had been communicated with and had explained that the objects had been carried from some other part of this earth's surface by a whirlwind. They were white in substance and the consistency of Indian corn. I believe nothing. I have shut myself away from the rocks and wisdoms of ages and from the so-called great teachers of all time, and perhaps because of that isolation I am given to bizarre hospitalities. I shut the front door upon Christ and Einstein and at the back door hold out a welcoming hand to little frogs and periwinkles. I believe nothing of my own that I have ever written. I cannot accept that the products of the minds are subject matter for beliefs, but I accept with reservations that give me freedom to ridicule the statement at any other time, that showers of an edible substance that has not been traced to an origin upon this earth have fallen from the sky in Asia Minor. There have been suggestions that unknown creatures and unknown substances have been transported to this earth from other fertile worlds, or from other parts of one system or organism, a composition of distances that are small relatively to the unthinkable spans that astronomers think they can think of. There have been suggestions of a purposeful distribution in this existence. Purpose in nature is thinkable without conventional theological interpretations. If we can conceive of our existence, or the so-called solar system, and the stars around as one organic state, formation, or being. I can make no demarcation between the organic or the functional and the purposeful when, in an animal organism, osteoblasts appear and mend a broken bone. They represent purpose, whether they know what they're doing or not. Any adaptation may be considered an expression of purpose if by purpose we mean nothing but intent upon adaptation, if we can think of our whole existence, perhaps one of countless organisms in the cosmos, as one organism, we can call its functions and distributions either organic or purposeful, or mechanically purposeful. Chapter 4 Over the town of Noirefontaine, France, one day in April 1842, there was a cloudless sky, but drops of water were falling. See back to data upon repetitions. The water was falling, as if from a fixed appearing point, somewhere above the ground, to a definite area beneath. The next day water was still falling upon this one small area, as mysteriously as if a ghost aloft were holding the nozzle of an invisible hose. I take this account from the Journal of the French Academy of Sciences, Comprendu, Volume 14, page 664. What do I mean by that? I don't mean anything by that. At the same time, I do mean something by the meaninglessness of that. I mean that we are in the helpless state of a standardless existence, and that the appeal to authority is as much of a wobble as any other of our insecurities. Nevertheless, though I know of no standards by which to judge anything, I conceive, or accept the idea, of something that is the standard, if I can think of our existence as an organism. If human thought is a growth, like all other growths, its logic is without foundation of its own, and is only the adjusting constructiveness of all other growing things. A tree cannot find out, as it were, how to blossom, until comes blossom time. 
A social growth cannot find out the use of steam engines until comes steam engine time. For whatever is supposed to be meant by progress, there is no need in human minds for standards of their own. This is in the sense that no part of a growing plant needs guidance of its own devising, nor special knowledge of its own as to how to become a leaf or a root. It needs no base of its own, because the relative wholeness of the plant is relative baseness to its parts. At the same time, in the midst of this theory of submergence, I do not accept that human minds are absolute non-entities, just as I do not accept that a leaf or a root of a plant, though so independent upon a main body, and so clearly only a part, is absolutely without something of an individualizing touch of its own. It is the problem of continuity-discontinuity, which perhaps I shall have to take up sometime. However, London Times, April 26, 1821, that the inhabitants of Truro, Cornwall, were amused, astonished, or alarmed, according to nerve and judgment, by arrivals of stones from unfindable source upon a house in Carlow Street. The mayor of the town visited the place and was made so nervous by the rattling stones that he called out the military guard. He investigated, and the soldiers investigated, and the clatter of theorists increased the noise. Times, May 1st, stones still rattling, theorists still clattering, but nothing found out. Flows of frogs, flows of worms, flows of water, flows of stones. Just where do we expect to draw a line? Why not go on to thinking that there may have been mysterious transportations of human beings? We'll go on. A great deal of the opposition to our data is connotative. Most likely when Dr. Gilbert rubbed a rod and made bits of paper jump on a table, the opposition to his magic was directed not so much against what he was doing as against what it might lead to. Witchcraft always has a hard time, until it becomes established and changes its name. We hear much of the conflict between science and religion, but our conflict is with both of these. Science and religion always have agreed in opposing and suppressing the various witchcrafts. Now that religion is inglorious, one of the most fantastic of transferences of worships is that of glorifying science, as a beneficent being. It is the attributing of all that is of development or of possible betterment to science. But no scientist has ever upheld a new idea, without bringing upon himself abuse from other scientists. Science has done its utmost to prevent whatever science has done. There are cynics who deny the existence of human gratitude. But it seems that I am no cynic. So convinced am I of the existence of gratitude that I see it in one of our strongest oppositions. There are millions of persons who receive favors that they forget. But gratitude does exist, and they've got to express it somewhere. They take it out by being grateful to science. For all the science has done for them. A gratitude which, according to their dull perceptions, won't cost them anything. So there is an economic indignation against anybody who is disagreeable to science. He is trying to rob the people of a cheap gratitude. I like a bargain as well as anybody does. But I can't save expenses by being grateful to science. If for every scientist who has perhaps been of benefit to me, there have been many other scientists who have tried to strangle that possible benefit. Also, if I'm dead broke, I don't get benefits to be grateful for. Resistance to notions in this book will come from persons who identify industrial science and the good of it with the pure or academic or aristocratic sciences that are living on the repute of industrial science. In my own mind, there is a distinguishment between a good watchdog and the fleas on him, 
If the fleas, too, could be taught to bark, there'd be a little chorus that would be of some tiny value. But fleas are aristocrats. London Times, January 13th, 1843, that according to the Courier de la Serre, two little girls, last of December, 1842, were picking leaves from the ground near Clavaux, Livet, France, when they saw stones falling around them. The stones fell with uncanny slowness. The children ran to their homes and told of the phenomena and returned with their parents. Again, stones fell, and with the same uncanny slowness. It is said that relatively to these falls, the children were attractive agents. There was another phenomena, an upward current, into which the children were dragged as if into a vortex. We might have had data of mysterious disappearances of children, but the parents, who were unaffected by the current, pulled them back. In the Toronto Globe, September 9, 1880, a correspondent writes that he had heard reports of most improbable occurrences upon a farm near the township of Wesley, Ontario. He went to the place to interview the farmer, Mr. Manser. As he approached the farmhouse, he saw that all the windows were boarded up. He learned that, about the end of July, windows had begun to break, though no missiles had been seen. The explanation by the incredulous was that the old house was settling. It was a good explanation, except for what it overlooked. To have any opinion, one must overlook something. The disregard was that, quite as authentic as the stories of breaking windows, were stories of falls of water in the rooms, having passed through the walls, showing no trace of such passage. It is said that water had fallen in such volumes from appearing points in rooms that the furniture of the house had been moved to a shed. In all our records, openness of phenomena is notable. The story is that showers fell in rooms when the farmhouse was crowded with people. For more details, see the Halifax Citizen, September 13th. I omit about 60 instances of seeming teleportations of stones and water, of which I have records. Numerousness hasn't any meaning as a standard to judge by. The simplest cases of seeming teleportations are flows of stones into open fields, doing no damage, not especially annoying anybody, and in places where there were no means of concealment for mischievous or malicious persons. There is a story of this kind in the New York Sun, June 22, 1884. June 16, a farm near Trenton, New Jersey, Two young men, George and Albert Sanford, hoeing in a field. Stones falling. There was no building anywhere near, and there was not even a fence behind which anybody could hide. The next day, stones fell again. The young men dropped their hoes and ran to Trenton, where they told of their experiences. They returned with 40 or 50 amateur detectives, who spread out and tried to observe something, or more philosophically sat down and arrived at conclusions without observing anything. Crowds came to the cornfield. In the presence of crowds, stones continued to fall from a point overhead. Nothing more was found out. A pig and his swill, or science and data, or that the way of a brain is only the way of a belly. We can call the process that occurs in them either assimilative or digestive. The mind worshipper might as well take guts for his god. For many strange occurrences, there are conventional explanations. In the mind of a conventionalist, reported phenomena assimilate with conventional explanations. There must be disregards. The mind must reject some data. This process, too, is both elementary and mental. 
The conventional explanation of mysterious flows of stones is that they are peggings by neighbors. I've given data as I have found them. Maybe they are indigestible. The conventional explanation of mysterious flows of water is that they are exudations from insects. If so, there must sometimes be torrential bugs. New York Sun, October 30th, 1892. That day after day in Oklahoma, where for weeks there had been a drought, water was falling upon a large cottonwood tree near Stillwater. A conventionalist visited the tree. He found insects. In Insect Life, 5-204, it is said that the Stillwater mystery had been solved. Dr. Neal, director of the Agricultural Experimental Station at Stillwater, had gone to the tree and had captured some of the insects that were causing the precipitation. They were Proconia undata, fab. And how am I going to prove that this was a senseless or brutal or anyway mechanical assimilation? We don't have proofs. We have expressions. Our expression is that this precipitation in Oklahoma was only one of perhaps many. We find three other recorded instances at this time. And if they be not attributable to exudations from insects, but will not prove anything. There is a theorem that Euclid never attempted, that is to take QED as a proposition. In Science 21-94, Mr. H. Chaplin of Ohio University writes that, in the town of Akron, Ohio, about while water was falling upon a tree in Oklahoma, there had been a continuous fall of water during a succession of clear days. Members of the faculty of Ohio University had investigated but had been unable to solve the problem. There was a definite and persisting appearing point from which to a small area near a brickyard, water was falling. Mr. Chaplin, who had probably never heard of similar occurrences far from damp places, thought that vapors from this brickyard were rising and condensing and falling back. If so, there would often be such precipitations over ponds and other bodies of water. About the same time, water was mysteriously appearing at Martinsville, Ohio, according to the Philadelphia Public Ledger, October 19, 1892. Behind a house, a mist was falling upon an area not more than a dozen feet square. St. Louis Globe Democrat, November 19th, that in Water Street, Brownsville, PA, there was a garden in which there was a peach tree upon which water was falling. As to the insect explanation, we note the statement that the water seemed to fall from some height above the tree and covered an area about 14 feet square. For all I know, some trees may have occult powers. Perhaps some especially gifted trees have power to transport water from far away in times of need. I noted the drought in Oklahoma, and then I looked up conditions in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Rainfall was below normal. In Ohio, according to the Monthly Weather Review of November, there was a drought. A watery mana came to chosen trees. There is no sense in trying to prove anything, if all things are continuous, so that there isn't anything except the inclusive of all, which may be something. But aesthetically, if not scientifically, there may be value in expressions, and we'll have variations of our theme. There were, in places far apart, simultaneous flows of water from stationary appearing points in and around Charleston, S.C., in the period of the long series of earthquake shocks there. Later, I shall touch more upon an idea that will be an organic interpretation of falls of water in places that have been desolated by catastrophes. About the middle of September 1886, 
falling water from a cloudless sky, never falling outside a spot 25 feet wide, was reported from Dawson GA. This shower was not intermittent. Of course, the frequently mentioned circumstance of the cloudless sky has no significance. Water falling all the way from the sky, even at times of the slightest breezes, cannot be thought of as localizing strictly upon an area of a few yards in diameter. We think of appearing points a short distance above the ground. Then showers upon a space 10 feet square were reported from Aiken, SC. There were similar falls of water at Chira, SC. For particulars, see the Charleston News and Courier, October 8th, 21st, 25th, 26th. For an account of falls of water from a cloudless sky strictly to one point in Charlotte, NC, according to investigations by a meteorologist, see the Monthly Weather Review, October 1886. In the New York Sun, October 24th, it is said that for 14 days, water had been falling from a cloudless sky to a point in Chesterfield County, SC, falling so heavily that streams of it gushed from the roof pipes. Then came news that water was falling from a point in Charleston. Several days before, in the News and Courier, had been published the insect explanation of falls of water. In the News and Courier, November 5th, a reporter tells that he had visited the place in Charleston, where it was said that water was falling, and that he had seen a fall of water. He had climbed a tree to investigate. He had seen insects. But there are limits to what can be attributed, except by those most desperate explainers, to insects. In the Monthly Weather Review, August 1886, it is said that in Charleston, September 4th, three showers of hot stones had been reported. An examination of some of these stones, shortly after they had fallen, forced the conviction that the public was being made the victim of a practical joke. How an examination of stones could demonstrate whether they had been slung humorously or not is more than whatever brains I have can make out. Upon September 4th, Charleston was desolated. The great earthquake had occurred upon August 31st, and continuing shocks were terrorizing the people. Still, I'd go far from my impressions of what we call existence, if I'd think that terror or anything else was ever homogeneous at Charleston, or anywhere else. Battles and shipwrecks, and especially diseases, are materials for humorists. And the fun of funerals never will be exhausted. I don't argue that in the midst of desolation and woe at Charleston there were no jokers. I tell a story as I found it recorded in the Charleston News and Courier, September 6th, and mention my own conclusion, which is that wherever jocular survivors of the catastrophe may have been cutting up capers, they were not concerned in this series of occurrences. At 2.30 o'clock, morning of September 4th, stones, which were found to be warm, fell near the News and Courier building, some of them bounding into the press room. Five hours later... When there was no darkness to hide mischievous survivors, more stones fell. It was a strictly localized repetition, as if one persisting current of force. At 1.30 o'clock in the morning, again stones fell, and these were seen coming straight down from a point overhead. If any conviction was forced, it was forced in the same old way as that in which for ages convictions have been forced, and that is by forcing agreements with prior convictions. Other details were published in the Richmond Whig, it was told that the stones, which were flint pebbles, ranging from the size of a grape to the size of a hen's egg, had fallen upon an area of 75 square feet, and that about a gallon of them had been picked up. In a descriptive narrative of the earthquake of August 31st, 1886, 
Carl McKinley, an editor of the News and Courier, tells us two of these showers of stones, which, according to him, undoubtedly fell. The localized repetitions of showers of stones are so much like the localized repetitions of showers of water that one inclusive explanation or expression is called for. Insects did them? Or the fishmonger of Worcester had moved to South Carolina? A complication has been developing. Little frogs fell upon Mr. Stoker and his horses, but we had no reason to think that either Mr. Stoker or his horses had anything to do with bringing about the precipitation. But the children of Claveau did seem to have something to do with the showers of stones, and trees did seem to have something to do with the precipitations of water. Rand Daily Mail, May 29, 1922, that Mr. D. Neves, living near Roadport, employed as a chemist in Johannesburg, having for several months endured showers of stones, had finally reported it to the police. Five constables, having been sent to the place after dark, had hardly taken positions around the house when a stone crashed on the roof. Phenomena were thought to associate with the housemaid, a hot-and-tot girl. She was sent into the garden, and stones fell vertically around her. This is said to have been one of the most mysterious of the circumstances. Stones fell vertically, so that there was no tracing of them to an origin. Mr. Neves's home was an isolated building, except for outhouses. These outhouses were searched, but nothing to suspect was found. The stones continued to fall from an unknown source. Police Inspector Cummings took charge. He ordered all members of the family, servants and newspaper men, to remain in the house for a while, so everybody was under inspection. Outside were constables, and all around were open fields with no means of concealment. Stones fell on the roof. Watched by the police, the Hottentot girl went to the well. A large stone fell near her. She ran back to the house, and a stone fell on the roof. It is said that everything that could be done was done, and that the cordon of police was complete. More stones fell. Convinced that in some way the girl was implicated, the inspector tied her hands. A stone fell on the roof. Then everything was explained. A civilian concealed in one of the outhouses had been caught throwing a stone. If so, whoever wrote this account did not mention the name of the culprit. And it is not said that the police made any trouble for him for having made them work. Then everything was explained again. It was said that the girl, Sarah, had been taken to the police station, where she had confessed. It is understood that Sarah admits being a party to all the stone-throwing, and has implicated two other children and a grown native. So ends the Rudeport ghost story, shorn of all its alleged supernatural trappings. Though usually we do not think piously of the police, their stations are confessionals, but their confessionals more in a scientific than in a religious sense. When a confessor holds a club over a conscience, he can bully statements with the success of any scientist who slugs data with a theory. There is much brutality in police stations and in laboratories, but I can't say that we're trying to reform anything. And if there never has been a Newton or a Darwin or an Einstein or a Moses or a Christ or a St. Augustine who was practiced other than the third degree upon circumstances, I fear me that sometimes we are not innocent of one or two degrees ourselves. However, the story reads more as if the girl had been taken to a barber shop. Her story was shorn, we read. It was clipped, bald of all the details, such as the cordon of police, search of the outhouses, and the taking of precautions, 
such as will not fit in with this yarn of the tricky kids. In this book, we shall note much shearing. The writer in the Monthly Weather Review is not the only clipper who forces a conviction when he can. There was a case in another part of South Africa, not long before the bombardments of the Rudeport began. In the Klerdsdorp record, November 18, 1921, it is said that for several weeks there had been mysterious stone-throwing by invisible agencies at the houses of Mr. Gibbon Joseph and Mr. H.J. Minar in North Street. A detective was put on the case. He was a logician. It was a ghost story, or it was a case of malicious mischief. He could not pinch a ghost, so he accused two Negroes and arrested them. The Negroes were tried upon testimony given by two boys of the race. But the boys contradicted each other, and it was brought out that they were lying. They admitted that the logical detective had promised them five shillings to substantiate his syllogisms. In the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, 12-260, is published a letter from Mr. W.G. Grotendick, telling that about one o'clock, one morning in September 1903, at Dortrecht, Sumatra, he was awakened by hearing something fall on the floor of his room. Sounds of falling objects went on. He found that little black stones were falling, with uncanny slowness, from the ceiling or from the roof which was made of large, overlapping, dried leaves. Mr. Grotendijk writes that these stones were appearing near the inside of the roof, not puncturing the material. If through this material they were passing, he tried to catch them at the appearing point, but though they moved with extraordinary slowness, they evaded him. There was a coolie boy asleep in the house at the time. The boy certainly did not do it, because at the time I bent over him. While he was sleeping on the floor, there fell a couple of stones. There was no police station handy, and this story was not finished off with a neat and fashionable cut. I point out that these stories of flows of stones are not conventional stories, and are not well known. Their details are not standardized, like clanking chains in ghost stories, and eyes the size of saucers in sea serpent yarns. Somebody in France in the year 1842 told of slow-moving stones, and somebody in Sumatra in the year 1903 told of slow-moving stones. It would be strange if two liars should invent this circumstance. And that is where I get when I reason. If strangeness be a standard for unfavorable judgment, I damn at a swipe most of this book. But damnation is nothing to me. I offer the data. Suit yourself. Nobody can investigate the reported phenomena that we're taking up without noticing the number of cases in which boys or girls and a great preponderance of girls appear. An explanation by those who disregard a great deal, or disregard normally, is that youngsters are concerned so much because it is their own mischief. Poltergeist phenomena or teleportations of objects in the home of Mr. Frost, 8 Pharaoh Stone, Hornsey, London, for several months, early in the year 1921, cannot be so explained. There were three children. Phenomena so frightened one of them that, in a nervous breakdown, she died. London Daily Express, April 12, 1921. Another, in a similar condition, was taken to the Lewisham London Hospital, London Daily News, April 30, 1921. In attempting to rationalize various details that we have come upon, or to assimilate them, or to digest them, the toughest meal is swallowing statements upon mysterious appearances in closed rooms, or passages of objects and substances through walls of houses, without disturbing the material of the walls. 
Oh yes, I have heard of the fourth dimension, but I'm going to do myself some credit by not lugging in that particular way of showing that I don't know what I'm writing about. There's a story in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, January 27, 1888, large stones that were appearing and falling slowly in closed rooms in the home of Mr. P.C. Martin, Caldwell County, N.C., Madras, India, Mail, March 5, 1888, pieces of brick that, in the presence of many investigators, were falling in a schoolroom in Pondicherry. I can understand this phenomena, or alleged phenomena, of appearances in closed rooms, no more than I can understand the passage of a magnetic field of force through the wall of a house, without disturbing the material. But lines of this force do not transport objects through a dense material. Then I think of X-rays, which do something like this, if it be accepted that X-rays are aggregations of very small objects or particles. X-rays do, or sometimes do, disturb materials penetrated by them, but this disturbance is not evident until long after continuance. If there is teleportation, it is in two orders, or fields, electric and non-electric, or phenomena that occur during thunderstorms and phenomena that occur under a cloudless sky and in houses. If the hosts of stories that I have gathered, but with which I have not swamped this book, of showers of living things, the rarest of all statements is of inquiry to the falling creatures. Then from impressions that have arisen from other data, we think that the creatures may not have fallen all the way from the sky, but may have fallen from appearing points not high above the ground, or may have fallen a considerable distance under a counter-gravitational influence. I think that there may be a counter-gravitational influence upon transported objects because of the many agreeing accounts, more than I have told of, of slow-falling stones by persons who had probably never heard of other stories of slow-falling stones, and because I have come upon records of similar magic or witchcraft, and which will be accepted as sane and sober meteorological observations. See Annual Register, 1859-70. to an account by Mr. E.J. Lowe, a meteorologist and an astronomer, of a fall of hailstones at Nottingham, England, May 28, 1859. Though the objects were more than an inch across, they fell slowly. In September 1873, near claremont ferrand France, according to La Nature, 7-289, hailstones measuring from an inch to an inch and a half across fell. They were under an unknown influence. Notwithstanding their size, they fell so slowly that they did no damage. Some fell upon roofs and rebounded, and it was as if these shook off the influence. Those that rebounded then fell faster than those that came down in an unbroken fall. For other records of this phenomena, see Nature 36-445, Illustrated London News 34-546, Bullsock Astro de France, June 19, 1900. If in the general electric conditions of a thunderstorm there be sometimes a counter-gravitational effect upon objects, somebody might find out how counter-gravitationally to electrify aircraft and aviators. If all work is opposition to gravitation, somebody might make a big discovery of benefit to general laziness. Elevators and skyscrapers might be run with half the power now needed. Here is an idea that may revolutionize industry, but just now I am too busy revolutionizing everything else and I give this idea to the world, with the generosity of somebody who bestows something that isn't any good to him. But mysterious disappearances? Our data have been upon 
mysterious appearances. If I could appeal to what used to be supposed to be known as common sense, I'd ask whether something that mysteriously appears somewhere had not mysteriously disappeared somewhere else. Annals of Electricity, 6-499, Liverpool, May 11th, 1842. Not a breath of air. Suddenly, close on lines on a common shot upward. They moved away slowly. Smoke from chimneys indicated that above the ground there was a southward wind, but the clothes moved away northward. There was another instance a few weeks later. London Times, July 5th, 1842. A bright, clear day at Coopar, Scotland, June 30th. Women hanging out clothes on a common. There was a sharp detonation, and clothes on lines shot upward. Some fell to the ground, but others went on and vanished. There was a seeming of selection, which, because of possible bearing upon various observations of ours, interests me. Though this was a powerful force, nothing but the clothes it seized was affected. I wonder about the detonation, largely because it is in agreement with the detail of still another story. The closeness in time of these two occurrences attracts my attention. There were a few weeks apart, and I have no other such record, until 77 years later. A sensible suggestion is that somebody in Kupar, having read the Liverpool story, had faked a similar story from his town. A suggestion that is not so sensible is that, in this year, 1842, somebody had learned the secrets of teleportation, and to avoid attracting much attention in any one place, was experimenting in places far apart. It seems likely enough to me that, if there be teleportation, human beings may have come upon the knowledge of it, and may have used it. Likely enough? A spiritualist would say. Has he ever heard of a pores? But whether it's narrowness and bigotry upon my part or not, I do not go to seances for data. I have collected notes upon mysterious robberies, wondering whether a teleportative power has ever been used criminally. As to a port, if a medium could transport seashells from the sea to his cabinet, he could abstract funds from a bank to his pocket. If he could not, but would not, how account for his being a medium? Looking through newspapers, I've had a searching eye for something like an account of a medium who had become mysteriously rich in a town where there had been shortages of funds. Clerks accused of embezzlement and convicted, but upon evidence that was not altogether satisfactory. Although usually I can find data to prove anything that I want to prove. I have come upon no such account, and I am skeptical as to abhors, and think that mediums are like most of the rest of us who are not criminals having no exceptional abilities. However, there may be criminal adepts who are not known mediums. There was in June 1919 at Islip, Northampton, England, an occurrence like the occurrences at Liverpool and Coupar. London Daily Express, June 12, 1919. A loud detonation, basket full of clothes, shooting in the air. Then the clothes came down. There may be ineffective teleportative seizures. London Daily Mail, May 6, 1910. Phenomena near Catalana, Spain. From 10 o'clock in the morning till noon. May 4th, stones shot up from a spot in the ground. Loud detonations were heard. Traces of an extinct volcano are visible at the spot. And it is believed that a new crater is being formed. But there is no findable record of volcanic activity in Spain at this time. Nor at any other time. I am reminded of the loud noises that often accompany poltergeist disturbances. 
In Niles Weekly Register, November 4th, 1815, there's an account of stones that have been watched rising in a field near Marbleton, Ulster County, New York, that these stones had been seen to rise three or four feet from the ground, then moving horizontally from 30 to 60 feet. Out in open fields, there have been showers of water, strictly localized and of unknown origin. A Dr. Neal will be heard from. He was captured, not indefinitely alluded to insects, but Poconia undata fab. Every mystery has its fishmonger. Considered figuratively, he need not be a seller of fish. His name may be Smith or O'Brien, or it may be Poconia undata fab. But presumably in the winter time in England, members of the Poconia family are not busy and available for explanations. In the Chorley, Lancashire Standard, February 15, 1873, is a story of excitement in the town of Eccleston. At Bank House, occupied by two elderly women and their niece, streams of water started falling about the 1st of February, seemingly from ceilings. Furniture was soaked, and the occupants of the house were alarmed. The falls seemed to come from the ceiling, but probably the most singular feature of the affair is that the ceilings were apparently quite dry. See back to Mr. Grochendieck's story of objects that were appearing near a ceiling or roof with no signs of penetrating the material. Workmen had been called to the house and had investigated but were unable to explain. Openness again. House packed with neighbors, watching the showers. These data would make trouble for spiritualistic mediums and their requirements for special or closed conditions and at least semi-darkness. If mediums were bothered by more than unquestioning or occasionally politely questioning faith. If some of them had been knocked about a bit, they were relatively few. Nobody in this house sat in a cabinet. Nobody was a logician. Nobody reasonably argued that chemists, for instance, must have special conditions, or the reactions will not work out. For instance, said nobody, how could you develop a photograph except in the special conditions of darkness or semi-darkness? The look to me is that Throughout what is loosely called nature, teleportation exists as a means of distribution of things and materials, and that sometimes human beings have command, mostly unconsciously, though perhaps sometimes as a development from research and experiment of this force. It is said that in savage tribes there are rainmakers, and it may be that among savages there are teleportationists. Some years ago, I'd have looked superior if anybody had said this to me, but a good many of us are not so given to the tut-tut as we used to be. It may be that in civilized communities, because of their shortages, the power to attract flows of water being no longer needed has virtually died out, still appearing occasionally, however. It could be that in reading what most persons think are foolish little yarns of falling stones, we are visionarily in the presence of cosmic constructiveness, or that once upon a time this whole earth was built up by streams of rocks, teleported from other parts of an existence. The crash of falling islands, the humps of piling continents, and then the cosmic humor of it all, or utmost spectacularity functioning, then declining, and surviving only as a vestige. Or that the force that once heaped the peaks of the Rocky Mountains now slings pebbles at a couple of farmers near Trenton, New Jersey. So I'd conceive of the existence of a force, and the use of it, unconsciously mostly, by human beings. It may be that if somebody, gifted with what we think of we mean by agency, fiercely hates somebody else, he can, out of intense visualizations, direct by teleportation bombardments of stones upon his enemy. 
water falls on a tree in Oklahoma. It is told of in an etymological magazine. Water falls in a house in Eccleston. I read that in a spiritualist periodical, though I went to a newspaper for the data. These are the isolations or the specializations of conventional treatments. I tell of water falling upon a tree in Oklahoma and of water falling in a house in Eccleston and think that both phenomena are manifestations of one force. It is my attempt to smash false demarcations, to take data away from narrow and exclusive treatments by spiritualists, astronomers, meteorologists, etymologists, also denying the validity of usurpations of words and ideas by metaphysicians and theologians. But my interest is not only that of a unifier, it is in bringing together seeming incongruities and finding that they have affinity. I am very much aware of the invigoration of products of ideas that are foreign to each other, if they mate. This is exogamy, practiced with thoughts, to fertilize a volcanic eruption with a storm of frogs, or to mingle the fall of an edible substance from the sky with an unexplained appearance of Cagliostro. I am a pioneer and no purist, and some of these stud stunts of introducing vagabond ideas to each other may have about the eugenic value of some of the romances in Houses of Ill Fame. I cannot expect to be both promiscuous and respectable. Later, most likely, some of these unions will be properly licensed. Sometimes in what I call teleportations, there seems to be agency and sometimes not. That the agency is not exclusively human and has nothing to do with spirits of the departed is indicated, I suppose, if we accept that sometimes there are occult powers of trees. Some other time I may be able to more clearly think out an expression upon flows of pigeons to their homes and flows of migratory birds as teleportative or quasi-teleportative. My suggestion as to the frequently reported agency of children is that occult forces were, in earlier times of human affairs, far more prevalent and far more necessary to the help and maintenance of human communities than they are now, with political and economic mechanisms somewhat well-established or working after a fashion, and that wherein children are atavistic, they may be in rapport with forces that mostly human beings have outgrown. Though just at present I am no darling of the popes, I expect to end up holy some other time, with the general expression that all theories of miracles are not lies, or not altogether lies, and that in the primitive conditions of the Middle Ages, there were hosts of occurrences that now considerably, though not altogether, have been outgrown. Anybody who broadly accepts the doctrine of relativity should accept that there are phenomena that exist relatively to one age that do not, or do not so pronouncedly, exist in another age. I more or less accept a great deal that religionists piously believe. As I see myself, I represent a modernization of the old-fashioned atheist, who so sweepingly denied everything that seemed to interfere with his disbeliefs. There are, of course, other explanations of the occult powers of children. One is that children, instead of being atavistic, may occasionally be far in advance of adults, foreshadowing coming human powers, because their minds are not stifled by conventions. After that, they go to school and lose their superiority. Few boy prodigies have survived in education. The outstanding suggestion, which, however, like many other suggestions, I cannot now develop, is that... If teleportation exists, it may be used. It may be criminally used, or it may be used commercially. Cargoes without ships and freights without trains may be of the traffics of the future. 
There may be teleportative voyages from planet to planet. Although so many of our data are bound up with jokes, hoaxes, and flippant treatments that I think of the toy and play genesis of many practical inventions. Billions of dollars are today seriously drawing dividends from toys and games that were put to work. Billions of laughs and jeers have preceded solemn expressions of satisfaction with fat bank accounts. But this is only reasoning and is nothing but logic and argument. And there have been billions of laughs that never turned into anything more satisfactory. Though where do I get the idea that there is anything more satisfactory than a laugh? If, in other words, or in other parts of one relatively little existence, there be people who are far ahead of terrestrians, perhaps teleportatively, beings from other places have come to this earth, and have seen nothing to detain them. Or perhaps some of the more degraded ones have felt at home here, and have hung around or have stayed here. I think of these fellows as throwbacks, concealing their origin, of course. Having perhaps only a slightly foreign appearance, having affinity with our barbarisms, which their own races had cast off, I'd think of a feeling for this earth and other worlds as corresponding to the desire of most of us, now and then, to go to a South Sea island and be degraded. Throwbacks, translated to this earth, would not, unless intensely atavistic, take to what we regard as vices, but to what their own far-advanced people regard as perhaps unmentionable, or anyway unprintable, degradations. They would join our churches and wallow in pews. They'd lose all sense of decency and become college professors. Let a fall start, and the decline is swift. They'd end up as members of Congress. There's another view, for which I am now gathering material. New York Times, December 6, 1930. Scores die, 300 stricken by poison fog in Belgium. Panic grips countryside. Origin complete mystery. War scenes recalled. It may be that it was war. Mostly explanations by the scientists were just about what one would expect. But in the New York Telegram, December 6, Professor H. H. Sheldon was quoted, If there is a widespread lethal fog in the Meuse Valley, the conclusion of science would be that it is being deliberately caused by men and women. It may be that the inhabitants of other worlds or other parts of one organic existence have declared war upon this earth and have discharged down here sometimes under cover of fogs, volumes of poisonous gases. I have other records that may indicate something of this kind, but reluctantly I give up this interesting notion, as applied to the occurrence of December 5, 1930, because it associates with another phenomena of which I shall tell later. Only two weeks after the tragedy in Belgium appeared the fishmonger, the writer of an editorial in the New York Herald Tribune, December 19, 1930, started the conventionalizing and the minimizing and the obscurizing that always cloaks events that are inconsistent with a main norm of supposed knowledge. One may suspect that a sensational newspaper man counting up the deaths some dark day in the smoky steel towns of an Allegheny River could produce a story not far behind that from Belgium. Seventy-seven men and women were struck dead in Belgium. Oh, there's always some commonplace explanation for these occurrences, if we only use our common sense. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes.
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.